Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show, or welcome if it's your first time. I'm your host, Scott Wiley, and you're listening to the Action Addicts Podcast. Today we're going to be diving into the wonderful world of Scott Adkins movies. Yep, I can't quite believe it either. We are, well, over 40 episodes into the show, and somehow we haven't really had a Scott Adkins film in that list. I think, to be honest, it was kind of a subconscious thing where I was trying to not just burn through all of the popular picks straight away. And uh, now I've noticed how much my show is lacking in Scott Adkins. I'm really, really trying to resist the urge to just, like, binge a load. Because they're so easy to watch and he is so easy to enjoy. I suppose you could argue that Day Shift that I did with Mac would count, but... He is ultimately a small part of that film. It's a very memorable part of that film, but it is definitely not a Scott Adkins-led film in the same way that today's pick, Accident Man, is. And rather amusingly, because this was completely by accident, uh, it's kind of perfectly timed because everybody is talking about the fact that he's going to be in John Wick 4, and, uh, whilst we have known that for a while, what we haven't known is exactly how he would appear or what his role would entail, and, uh, <laughs> now we've seen him. And, uh, if you've watched the trailer, seen the poster, potentially watched the behind-the-scenes featurette that IGN put out, then you've seen, uh, a lot of him, and he, uh, he does not look how we expected him to look. I, for one... I'm very excited to see exactly what his role in the film is. I know that he definitely has some fight scenes because they've kind of showed them off. Uh, but I'm hoping that he's going to get a lot to play with in terms of an actual character. Because one of the things that I talk about with today's returning guest, Andy Gorham, is Scott is actually a pretty versatile actor. And it's a shame that it took... Till really this point in his career for these sorts of roles to start finding him. And this particular role was not one that found him. This role he made because he wasn't getting them. I don't want to give you a massive sort of backstory and intro because me and Andy do that pretty well. But I, I think everybody listening knows that this was a passion project. And if you didn't, you do now and you will know more shortly. So here we go. And I'll see you in the outro. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the live room. It's not live. It never is. But I can't think of anything better to call it. Welcome back to the show, Andy. How are you doing? Oh, great, Scott. Thank you for having me. And I like I kind of like live room. It sounds cool. It does. I, I really would like one of those LED lights behind me that says, you know, recording in progress so everybody knows. But 
there's no one else here but me, so it doesn't really serve any purpose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I could also have it, but then all my kids and my wife are upstairs, so they'd be like, who gives a shit if you're recording? I don't care. <laughs> yeah, well, you have the advantage. I, I don't have a basement to run away to to record in. <laughs> That's true. I just hope nobody starts walking around or jumping around upstairs, because you'll definitely be able to hear it. So, And something I, I desperately need to get better at is, uh, because you've been on the show several times, I should probably actually reiterate, for anyone who doesn't know, perhaps they've never listened to the show before, would you like to introduce yourself to anyone new listening? Oh, sure, of course. I mean, if you follow all of us on Twitter, I'm sure there, you know, some, a lot of people do. You know, I'm the super positive, almost to an annoying extent, I think, sometimes. <laughs> um, but, you know, have always loved action movies, always loved martial arts movies, um, love all all movies, really. There's not a bad movie. The only bad movie is the one that I don't watch. <laughs> Guess that's a way to look at it. But um, yeah, so, you know, comic books, Star Wars is the number one go to, but we're here to talk about action. So I can put Star Wars on the back burner for a couple hours and focus on action movies. So uh, if you if you love all uh, movies, does that mean that you love a film called Blood Heat? I find things to like about Blood Heat, but as a complete... <laughs> Remember, ultra positive here. I know we were going to talk about that. And then you're like, nah, fuck it. I'm not talking about that. And I was like, eh, there's plenty of other ones to talk uh, about instead. Uh, to, to be fair, that's not true. What actually happened is you were like, hey, can we talk about this film instead? Oh, and I was like, you're right. Oh. I did. I <laughs> Yeah. You just randomly were like, oh, can we talk about this film instead? Never actually said why. And then I was like, okay, sure. So then I made poor Rob watch the film, who then said the exact same thing and was like, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. And then oh. I find out everybody that's watched it is like, yeah, I don't I don't actually like that film. And it's like, I've made three people watch this film now and I still haven't seen it. <laughs> now, for the, the record, you didn't make me watch it. I own the actual uh, Media Blasters DVD. So I had I watched it long before I even knew you. So oh, okay. I, I knew what I was getting into. There was just a part of me that was thinking the movie we talked about. I was like, eh, maybe that'll spark a little more fun conversation type thing. So if you want to talk blood heat or muscle heat, whatever it's called, I will gladly come back on and we can talk about King Kashuki kicking ass. And that's all I'll talk about because there's not a lot else in that movie. Hey, I mean, that was <laughs> the only reason I wanted to talk about it because it's like, I love King Kasugi. I wish he was in more. Uh, yeah, more quality stuff. That guy deserves it. So. And uh, for anybody who's listening to the sultry sounds of Andy's voice and is wondering, so what other episodes have you done? He's been on Writing Wrongs. He came back and talked about The Batman. We then did Navy Seals, which was the one that should have been Blood Heat. And uh, then he came back with Patrick and we talked about the 2017 Power Rangers film, which if you've got three hours to, uh, you know, waste your life away with, that's a great episode to listen to. It is, definitely. And I mean, <laughs> wasting your life away with us is better than just doing nothing. So yeah, put it on. That is uh, that is the greatest advertisement for this show ever. If you've got nothing better to do than waste your life away, then this is the show for you. We are here to entertain you, even with Navy SEALs. <laughs> yeah, I, I like Navy SEALs, but anyway. Me too. Yeah, anyway. Accident Man, which every time I hear a part of my brain thinks action man and wants to follow that up with the tagline of the greatest hero of them all <laughs> which would just be funny I, I want someone to make that as a parody trailer for this now i would definitely watch that over and over again maybe i'll do it if i can find decent enough high quality audio but anyway accident man is a film that stars scott adkins was written by scott adkins pretty sure it was produced by scott adkins 
and some other people. It wasn't directed by Scott Atkins, though, so he didn't do the full trifecta. He got his mate Jesse V. Johnson to come in and do that. And it stars a bunch of people that are his friends, or at least were his friends before he killed them, because I don't know how they felt about that. Hey, you're my friend. Can you come into this film and let me kill you? Sure. That's a great friendship. Yeah, but I think I think action movie stars understand that, hey, if you're going to be in somebody else's movie, there's a good chance you're either going to get beat up, killed, or both. That probably explains why Steven Seagal ain't in any of these. Anyway. <laughs> or why he doesn't have any friends. <laughs> both are true. <laughs> so yeah, this film came out in 2018. And it's a safe sentence to say that it was a hit. And I don't think it was necessarily expected to be a hit. But it was. And I was very excited for the fact that it was a hit because it was a passion project. As I said, Scott wrote this with his friend Stu Small. It's based on a comic book that he loved growing up, written by Pat Mills. And if you recognize that name, that is the same person that wrote, wrote, created Judge Dredd. He wrote on 2000 AD. Well, he pretty much started 2000 AD, but I, I don't want to go into a massive comic book. History Exposé, if you want to learn more, go and pick up any of the many documentary stroke books about the 2000 AD publishing company. Uh, there are some great ones out there. I have one in the other room, signed by Pat Mills, in fact, along with a couple of Judge Dredd books. Um, he's a very nice guy. When I met him, he was a delight to chat to. Sadly, at the time, I didn't own an Accident Man comic in retrospect. I wish I did, because if I'd had that signed, I could have, you know, carried it on and got everyone involved in this film to sign it. So I'm curious, because I think I know the answer to this question. Were you familiar with the book before the film came about and made people go, hey, what's an accident, man? Honestly, uh, it pains me to say no, because such a big comic book fan, I've loved it my whole life. But I'm very, at times, insular with, you know, U.S.-based comics. I knew about Dread and I knew about some other ones, but never really had the ability to, or not the ability, just never really look into them, per se, till I got a little bit older. And then... Scott announced Accident Man and that it was this passion project that this comic book. And I was like, well, I'm going to check that out. And yeah, it's very interesting. It's a cool comic book. It's a very stylized of its time. Like the art and everything is very cool. Oh, yeah. Um, it's very 90s. Yes, very. It, I, I, is, I, I think I can safely say you wouldn't get this book published today. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was going to say, Andy's shaking his my... head vigorously there. <laughs> I mean, some... Some image or some, you know, indie labels might or some or you could maybe go to Kickstarter, but it's a weird sell. It is a kind of an and the way that they draw that character and stuff. It's like you're wearing a skin tight black leotard with like white boots and gloves, it's just which I kind of wish Scott would have done the look in the movie. But we'll get to that. Uh, I also find it funny that you almost mentioned image comics then, because I think it's it's pretty common knowledge in inverted commas that image comics basically like poached a lot of 2080s best writers and then they were like hey do you want to actually earn some money and like keep creative control over your characters uh yes please and then they went on and eventually most of them got into marvel and dc and dark horse and all the the big american companies and most of them have never looked back some have come back but most of the time they don't we never hear from them again we're just left cold and alone in england uh, as an american i am sorry about that but <laughs> I'm also not sorry because I get to read awesome comic books monthly from excellent writers. So I'll take yeah, it. Well, <laughs> to, to be fair, we can read them too. So it's all good. That's true. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. No, I mean, I'll be honest. I, I knew of the book. Like I'd, I'd heard of it, but I'd never actually read it. Um, I'm trying to think whether or not I first heard about it when I read or watched one of the many 
things about 2000 AD and how it came about and Pat Mills or or if I saw it on like a shelf at one of our like magazine stores in back in the day and since because I know it always freaks me out when I go into like a place called WH Smith which won't mean anything to you but it's a shop here that sells like stationery and books and crossword puzzles and envelopes like all that wonderful quaint old timey stuff that you know if you walk into the store you're going to be surrounded by people over a certain age demographic but sometimes they have old comics just sitting on the shelf like they're brand new because someone out there has decided to do a reissue or it's part of a collectible magazine subscription that i've never heard of that usually dies after the first couple months but yeah um 2008 i think had one a while back and it was weird going in and seeing like old judge dread and shocker and i think even hardware which was a only a short story which if you want to hear me talk more about go and listen to uh Lindsay's podcast schlock and all because i talked about hardware and doctor who and the daleks and their lovely weird relationship to how that's a ripoff of a 2008 product but was actually a really faithful production to the point that I actually think if someone tried to adapt hardware, they'd have messed it up. But by trying to rip it off, they actually did a really good job. <laughs> uh, I can also attest that was an excellent episode. And I learned a lot by listening to you because I was like, as a doctor, as a Doctor Who fan, I, who doesn't dive deep into it like I do Star Wars or action movies. I'm just like, I love Doctor Who. I'll watch it over and over again. But I'm not, I don't have to know all the history and everything else like that. It's nice to have friends that do and can shed a little bit of light on that. So. Well, I, I, in that episode in particular, it's it's the Peter Cushing films. They're kind of like the the black horse that, you know, the BBC tries very hard to keep locked in a vault and be like, what films? What are you talking about? Who's Peter Cushing? <laughs> Doesn't really work, though, considering they're like out on Blu-ray, 4K, remastered and all that. So, yeah, they're not exactly hard to find. But anyway, Axton Man, Scott Adkins, martial arts, action films. What did you think of this film when you first watched it? Oh god, I loved it. I was I, I was in the bag for it since it was first announced and I was waiting anxiously and then when the first trailer hit, I remember sending it to all of my friends, irritating them so cuz I was like if there's any if there's going to be a Scott Atkins movie that I can get him roped in, I think it might be this one cuz it's hard to sometimes get him into like, you know, Undisputed 3 cuz you have to explain that it, Undisputed was a boxing movie then they did a, a sequel which was DTV with, you know, MMA in it. This was a fresh new IP that I could just say, look, this is a this is brand new and there's going to be action in it. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be witty because the trailer kind of played a little bit of that wit with, you know, Scott's voiceover and probably more dialogue in a trailer than some of his previous movies combined. So I was excited as a longtime Atkins fan that he was going to get to showcase a little more. So, yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure that I started off a lot of people on Scott Atkins with this film when it came out as well. Uh, some of them already knew of him, though I don't actually remember if they'd actually seen any of the films or if they'd just, you know, heard me talk about them or seen them. Like, I, I know one of my friends, you know, they were like, oh, I know this guy. I see all of his films at the bottom of Asda's shelf for like three quid. It's like, yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. That's probably him. Yeah, <laughs> but this one, I think, really did strike a chord with people and rewatching it. Well, literally today, I got to say. It feels more high budget and high quality than I'd say most direct-to-video products do. There's something about the way this was shot. Uh, it's probably down to the director of cinematography, but 
it doesn't feel like I'm watching something that was made for 20 quid, which sometimes DTV films do. It's not their fault, and I don't hold it against most of them, but this one doesn't feel like that. And part of that, I think, is because a lot of people were in this as a favor, which meant that they could put money into other stuff. And and the actual setting. We don't get a lot of DTV set in and around London, filming in London. Well, you'll know better where it's at. I'm saying London probably sound like a complete moron because it's probably not filmed in London proper. But that setting and the fact that they wanted to, to that, you know, Scott wanted to showcase it really plays into the overall feel of the movie. And it doesn't feel like we're just going from a small isolated set to a small isolated set. It feels like a big open city. You know what I mean? Because there's a lot of shots of him on the bike, driving, you know, riding around, establishing shots and stuff that doesn't look, like you said, you don't see in your normal DTV action movie because they either don't have the budget or B, don't care and just want to get to the action. Yeah, I'm pretty certain this was filmed mostly in London. There might have been some shots that were not, like that they, they were shot around London, but there are definitely some shots that are 100% in London, especially the the exterior driving around on the bike shots. But yeah, the interior stuff could have been filmed anywhere. I, I have no idea. But yeah, all the exterior stuff definitely was. Um, some of the, the fight between um, Adkins, Ray Park, and Michael Jai White, I don't know where that was, but that looked like a, an old building that definitely could be somewhere in London. There's a lot of them. You know, that you're spoiled <laughs> for choice in London. But yeah, I'm pretty certain I remember Adkins saying that they did film the majority of it in London, and that was, you know, an achievement in and of itself. Because it is notoriously difficult to film there, because you can't shut it down, you know? There's so many, like, BBC productions where they, they play the outtakes, and it's like you're halfway through a scene, and then two people will walk out of the Chinese in the background and just completely destroy your shot, because you can't just close the street, you know? <laughs> Right. Well, you know, it's funny. I wouldn't have known that until, you know, following Atkins more closely and stuff, because you're right. You don't you kind of take that stuff for granted that, you know, even over here, you can get some areas for, you know, DTV movies. You can shut down a small little quaint town and kind of take that over to film for two weeks and then leave or something like that. And then you're like, oh, no, you can't really. Yeah, you can't shut down London. London will not shut down for your little DTV movie, unfortunately. No, I mean, I'm pretty certain that most of the shots were filmed either really early in the morning or really late at night. And, you know, there's a lot of trickery going on. I mean, I'm sure they can pay to shut down a street that maybe doesn't go anywhere. Like that, uh, the the sequence where he fights Tim Mann on the bike, that's probably a, was a was a case where they shut down the street. But yeah, the, the big city shots, no chance. I don't know. I assume that they just got out there at like the second the sun came up, shot the bike going through and then got the hell out of there. <laughs> It probably was very like uh, guerrilla filmmaking, like almost like they had to, like they had people scouting on each side. Of the, All right, it's free run. They ran out, took him, fil you know, like filmed him, and then just ran off real quick before it was done. Kind of like you know, that's how I picture it. Because it's like to get some of those shots, you have to, or it's just like we're gonna drive with traffic, and if this you know this stuntman's gonna be on the bike because it's not Scott because there's a helmet on him, which yeah. might be. A, is that a a a law that you have to wear a helmet while riding a bike over in London? I would assume so that it is the law i don't ride a bike so i can't answer that question it would be the law everywhere it wouldn't just be for london oh um, you're right correct i'm I'm 99 confident that you are supposed to wear safety gear but i see many people that don't so i don't actually know if it's like a law or if it's just a thing you should do right 
But I, I, I am going to state, even though I don't ride bikes, that if you don't wear that stuff, you're an idiot. So, <laughs> uh, you know what? I don't ride either. And here they've they've changed the law where you can. It's kind of up to the rider if they want to wear a helmet or safety gear. And uh, every time I see somebody without, I just want to go. Best of luck to you. <laughs> Pretty much. But uh, yeah, so we get introduced to Mike Fallon right from the word go. You actually start off with a random guy that has nothing to do with the rest of the plot as the credits roll. And then you get that great shot of him sat in the chair in the dark. And there's like a what looks like a crow's shadow or the like the silhouette of a crow. And he's sitting in front of it. And I think it's such a menacing shot. Combine that with the fact that that's also when you realize, oh, he's going to narrate through this film. And he's like, you know, he has that great line of, you know, I can't believe that uh, this guy's late to his own death. How how dare he be late? As I, like, I love that. Then he gets the guy and uh, kills him and makes it look like a suicide. And I think right from the word go, that tells you the tone of the film. And you're either on board with that or you're not. Because if you don't like that, the rest of this film isn't going to change your mind. Nor will the selfie of the guy hanging there and him kind of smiling <laughs> to end that scene. I'm like, oh, this is uh, OK. This is dark humor. OK, that works for me. But I could see where some people would be turned off by it for sure. Yeah. And I, I, I'll be honest, I think that's one of the reasons why the film did so well, because one of the. I don't want to say one of the the holes of direct video, but I do think that some people, as much as we might like them as action nerds, and you mentioned Undisputed 3, for example. That film's just a collection of fight scenes with some very, very like weak padding in between to justify why they exist. Yes, it's a tournament film, so they don't need to. But I feel like trying to convince mainstream audiences to watch that is an uphill battle because not everybody wants to just watch a load of fight scenes. Whereas Accident Man, there's a genuine story with a bit of a mystery, but also there's a lot of dark humor. and especially in England, I think we like dark humor. But if you just like laughing at these things in general, there's two things right there that this film has got that a lot of other Scott Adkins products at the time didn't have. Since this film, I think he's started to really incorporate it into many of the things he's done since then. But a lot of the stuff before this, it was basically just Jesus, look at him go, can't he backflip really high? True. I, I would disagree slightly about Undisputed 3 and the fact that they do try to incorporate story elements of Boyka, but you're right. The story overall is very, very just like, like you said, it's just there to drive the action forward. And Atkins and, and um, Isaac are just trying to, to get as much out of the little dramatic scenes as they can. Whereas this, I want to, I almost, story came first and the action was almost like, yeah, we can put action here, that, but we care more about the story and how it all plays out in the characters versus just focusing on the action. Yeah, and I have to say that I think a lot of that came from the director, Jesse V. Johnson, because Scott has pretty much said that that's where a lot of that came from, because one of the reasons why we're having this conversation, even though we had been talking about it for a while, but there's a sequel to this film, and we will talk about the sequel at a later date. But we wanted to talk about the original first. And one of the things that Scott has said in almost every interview that I've seen for the sequel is that what I really like about this first film, which is the darker tone, the twisted sense of humor, and the fact that it is just in general a more grungier feeling film, 
he didn't actually want. And most of that came from Jesse. And it's like, uh, yeah, see, I kind of like all that stuff. And another complaint that I see a lot of people say, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this because you are also a comic book guy, is the second film feels like a comic book movie, whereas the first film doesn't. But to me, I agree that the second film feels like a standard comic book movie, dare I say an American comic book movie, but the first film feels like British comic books. It feels like Accident Man, the comic book, which was not for everyone, I think, again, is the nicest way of putting it. And it feels like something that Pat Mills wrote. And because, like you just said at the beginning, it's very insular. You got exposed to a lot of American stuff, Marvel, DC. Whereas I got all of that stuff, but I also got a lot of British comic books. This feels like a British film, and it feels like a British comic book. And it really surprises me that Scott Adkins was like, yeah, but that's not how I wanted it to feel. And you're sort of going, or I was sort of left going, why? And the only thing I've come to the conclusion of is what he actually means is I wanted something that would make more money. <laughs> right? now, it's more universally appealing to the target audience that I'm trying to get the money from. <laughs> that is true. He's he's often said he's not very popular in his home country. So or his 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 movies don't do as well type of thing. But um, no, I think you're right. I like uh, we'll we'll definitely talk about two. Um, but no, the first one, it does feel very comic book like in terms of the characters because there are some zany like we forget like once you you know when a new sequel comes out you quickly compare it to the first one but then you kind of just focus on the new one because that's what kind of is fresh and new but when you think about it and go back like no there was some crazy zany characters in this i mean you know carnage carnage cliff is one of my favorite characters in the movie just because he's so you know yeah and insane but and when you first meet him there's that tone of comedic shifts of him screaming while throwing darts and just like hey mate and then throwing darts again while screaming as loud as he can and yeah so i would agree with you this is this is a more nuanced comic book movie whereas the sequel is just more balls to the wall yeah in the most plain way you know terms possible yeah i think that's a good way of putting it and that was kind of i think why i got uh, not annoyed because it was you know it was like people could think what they think but i saw so many people sort of say that the characters in the second film worked better for them. And I'm sort of thinking, what characters? You're talking about the clown that is just doing a, his impression of the Joker and it crossed together that can't feel any pain. Or are you talking about the strangler dude that gets no lines of dialogue and dies in the same sequence that he's introduced? Whereas you go back to the first film, all of these characters are introduced when he walks into the pub. All of them are given great backstories. All of them have great personality and quirks. Like you even just said with Carnage Cliff, he is sort of comedy to begin with. But all of the stuff that they introduce also isn't just random throwaway stuff. It actually comes back around and is a pretty important part of the plot, which I think is kind of smart. And I like that. Oh, yeah, me too. Totally. Like, uh, I, I like giving plus it gave a little more chance for the other, you know, the supporting cast to shine. Mm. Um, and the first movie does get. As I as I watched it again uh, last night to prep for this, not that I had to, I could talk about the movie ad nauseum without having to see it again, but I wanted to. The one thing that I I wish was in the sequel more is more Ray Stevenson, of course, yes. because Ray, because he just commands the screen every time he shows up. You're like, yep, that's that's why, yeah. So the fact that he's so prominent throughout this movie, and I appreciate that, and I think if we do get a third, he would be a lot more prominent in that one again. I think they've 
establish that. And I think the second one was more focusing on, you know, Mike and uh, um, Fred. Fred, thank you. I was like, Perry Benson. No, it's Fred. <laughs> but uh, who, which was funny because out of all the characters in the first movie, I would not have pictured Fred becoming such an important part in the sequel. But when you go back, Fred had a lot of the lines that made me laugh. And I quote to my friends all the time, like yep. my friends who have seen, have seen the movie, like, you know, when I, if they catch me picking my nose or just scratching my nose, I'll be like, you know, I'll kind of so throw his quote about nearly, you know, nearly poked me eye out with that one. And they, you know, a few of them get it, but um, yeah, no, the characters are more well-rounded and developed and the sequels more just like, here's some zany over the top characters. And I think when people talk about the it's more of um, Sarah, uh, Sarah, Sarah Chang and Fred and everybody that he deals with personally is what people are kind of attaching those better characters to versus the first one, which is a better ensemble cast. I guess you could look at it that way. Yes. And I think that and again, this is this is an unfair comparison. And this episode isn't just going to be us comparing the two films because it will get its own episode. But this is kind of the last thing. The last comparison to make is <sighs> this film is made of action people that all pretty much have some big thing to their name. I mean, Michael Jai White is the lead in any other directed video movie. Ray Park, whilst he doesn't have that same presence for his own face, you've seen a film that he's been in and he's been in a lot of high budget films, whether it be Star Wars, the G.I. Joe films, and he's done plenty of directed video stuff in his own right. I know that, unfortunately, his reputation is kind of all over the place. Like, he's a fantastic martial artist, and there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes with him. But in this film, and in a couple others, I personally think he really proves that he should have been in more as a as a main role. Like, he is so good in his fights with Scott Adkins, but he's also funny as hell. Like, some of his delivery of his dialogue is amazing. And, of course, rounding them out, you've got Amy Johnston, who was a complete, like, what the fuck moment for me when she got cast, because A, she's the youngest one there by far, but B, she deserved to be there because she's fantastic and amazing, and I was already kind of friends with her by that point, but at the same time, it was like, I'm actually kind of impressed that they went out of their way to cast somebody that isn't just the people that they've worked with before, you know? Yes, correct. And talented people who are proving themselves in their own way, either on youtube with amy or i think by then she may have done had she done lady blood fight yet yes or is that after this okay no no she's so done she had, that okay she had at least done that and and she and even if she hadn't done that all of her stuff on like just youtube alone i was like who this this woman deserves to be in everything she's uh, amazing and this is from a very the lowest of low common denominators but she's dropped dead gorgeous and she seems she's such a nice person like you see her in interviews if you follow her on you know social media she's just a ray of sunshine like <laughs> she's just man she's playing this crazy psycho that you know has a bunch of you know what's in a cabinet after she's done with it yeah. <laughs> um and it's like very against who she is but she I, I i i love her in this movie she pulls it off great she has an awesome fight scene with with scott and again they gave each character background so you're not just these nameless kind of villains who just show up to look cool and to, and who are talented. Don't get me wrong. We'll talk about that in part two because I'm done talking about two. I want to focus on one for sure. But yeah, these were, this was like a, almost like a mini expendables for us who love DTV action movies for sure. 
yeah, that, that's exactly what it felt like. And like you say, when they get introduced, Scott narration gives you a breakdown of who they are and what they are. And that could have been enough in any other film, but they take that one step further and almost give them mini movies. And it is mini, but they, you know, they show you in their natural habitat. Like you get Mick and Mac, well, allegedly in Iraq, but it was probably just a desert somewhere that they found. And they show them being actual soldiers and being kick-ass. And you get Amy's backstory of being raised in Japan. And you like all of these characters, well, maybe not Poison Pete, but all of these characters, even Cliff, it feels like they've come from another movie. And that's a really hard thing to achieve. But when it does, it works so well. Yes, very, very much so. These these the characters matter more because they come in and they feel established, even though we don't know much about them. You're like, oh yeah, Cliff, we saw him smash that door down. You know, you know, Scott's um, narration does it plays it really well because it gives you just enough background to make oh that's cool, and then they don't overdo it and they don't underdo it. It's just the right amount, which I kind of hope he and Stu Small write more movies together beyond just accident man i'd like to see them tackle something different maybe even a little more serious because i think they they understand um, story structure well yeah avengement yeah yeah i was just gonna say didn't didn't stu help on avengement good point thank you for correcting me on that because that's probably my favorite atkins movie if we're gonna make a list that's up there really high um and again super super british and as i told you before we were you know uh, officially recording when i see a British movie, I was like, I wish I could say words like, you know, bollocks and twat and not sound like a complete poser and an idiot. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's hilarious when you hear it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. I wish I could say that. But no, I, I say, I say bollocks and I sound like me. Ray Stevenson says it and it's got so much gravitas and the awesome accent with it. I'm just like, oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. That's cool. I can never be that cool ever. I think, uh, the funny thing with watching this now is I th- uh, the vast majority of people will know Ray Stevenson from his role in RRR. And the funny thing is, they could be the same person. <laughs> they are so similar. It's painful. And I love that shot, uh, uh, the dialogue where he's like goes on his little rant about anti-EU politics and up the Brexit, that's what I say. And I just thought, if you say British pound sterling in a minute, you're going to hit all the tick boxes. You're a descendant of that colonel from RRR. <laughs> Which I think, if I remember, he does say that in the sequel. They have him yep. say British pound sterling. Yep. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I know. But, uh, Ray Stevenson does, in my opinion, he steals every scene he's in. Which, considering, and I'm going to say something that I know is going to annoy people because I've seen how much people love it. I don't really like his Punisher film. So I was kind of surprised how much I liked him the first time I watched Accident Man. Oh, me too. I had known of him because, you know, he he plays that bit part in the uh, Clive Owen um, King Arthur. You know, he's the kind of oh, yes. big tall. Remember, wow. he's like the he's like yeah, the big yeah. tall dude that just kind of like follows Arthur and is like loyal and uh, and has a cool scene where he smashes the ice to help them get away and stuff. And I and I think that might be where i first really noticed him as a actor and stuff not that i didn't see him in things before but but then you know gi joe and then some other stuff and then but then this i was just like and uh punisher i'm with you i like aspects of it but as a whole i'm like eh, like it's fun it's not as memorable as everybody makes it out to be but hey to each their own i'm glad people love it uh, but then this i was like every time he's on screen i'm just like wow 
I'm watching a Scott Atkins movie and I don't care if we get back to Scott Atkins right now, which is saying something for me. So I, I also think that because I, re I really like I've seen this film so many times. I was really looking at how everything was composed on the screen. And they do a really good job with Ray because aside from the flashbacks, which we'll get to in a bit, but when you see him in the present day, he's in a black waistcoat, black trousers, really fancy shoes, and you only see him mostly from behind the bar. But the bar has got this dark, barely any lighting vibe to it, but where he's standing is a great big dark red light. And that makes you look like you're dealing with the devil. And with his accent, his mannerisms, and the fact that everybody in there is terrified of him because they know full well that he was the best killer in the room. And who's to say if he still is, you know? <laughs> it's like no one really wants to push that to the test. <laughs> but plus, they all wouldn't be there if it wasn't for Ray because he's the head of the outfit. He's every, you know, so without him, they don't get paid. There is no oasis. Yeah, they're not going to get paid. There's no jobs coming in because he's so good at what he did. Um, and just like you said, he's got the cool, that, that cool, like mutton chop beard yes. and, and just the way he carries himself. You're like, yeah, this guy is the, the head honcho. He's the biggest guy there. And he, and stature wise, he's just, he's a, he's a hawking human being who doesn't have to pomp and circumstance to get that up to kind of intimidate, just has to stand there and kind of tilt his head a little bit. And you're like, okay, I'll back off. Yeah, it's the it's the Michael Caine school of acting where the less you do, the more scary you are. You don't shout and scream. You don't try and throw your weight around. You just stand there and you stay perfectly calm and simply state facts because you're that confident in your own ability. You don't need to. And he does get to have some very humorous moments, too. Like not I mean, not like like belly laugh, but, you know, we'll get to, to the end when he kicks the shit out of uh, Milton and he just kind of goes like, <sighs> embraces it like kind of calms himself and then one more little kick to just kind of sell it but i just love that he goes crazy and he's just like <sighs> anyway my favorite moment of the, of the of his entire involvement in the film is in that sequence but not the end it's the beginning it's the moment of you can't throw these accusations around mike and then he throws the recording out and he just sort of stands there and he just sort of like holds his finger up like one moment please and just turns around every time that gets me to start laughing out loud without fail. Because it's just like, oh, for fuck's sake, Milton. <laughs> well, yeah, plus here's this uh, this guy who's got it all together, who thinks he knows it, and then is double-crossed by the one guy he's not worried about double-crossing him, really. Because he's like, no, this guy only has a job because of me. Yep. And he's this little scrawny, mousy guy who, you know, is, but, and I just love it. He's just like, huh. <laughs> so you're right yeah that is and it's a nice little moment of levity from ray stevens you can tell he had a great time i think making this movie i think that's why he came back for this the sequel because it's a much smaller role mm. but it was like okay no i i appreciate you giving me this role it was super fun and the 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 actual flashback is what sells it for me like i was i was all in on ray stevens when he first shows up and you hear him talk and he's bantering with everybody um, but then when you get to the flashback scenes, there's a lot of cool stuff that, and when you listen to Atkins and Stu Small's, um, audio, uh, uh, commentary, there's like little things that he just started doing that they didn't have written down. Cause that's what a good actor does. They just, you know, like when he's like writing down what young Mike Fallon saying, and he's just like, Oh, Mike 
that one. They're like, we didn't have that written down. He just thought this guy would be that kind of crazy person who would keep a ledger of everything that he said. And it works. It's really funny to me. Like, I see that and I'm just, I start kind of giggling at myself. Yeah, that that whole sequence is hilarious where the audience knows that he's not, what what he's doing, basically. You know, it's like, how naive is young Mike Fallon that he walks into an assassin's home has flat out told him that no one knows where he is. This is the only copy of the evidence I've got against you. And I'm going to just sit here and do what you tell me. And it's like, oh, good, good. And it's like, you know, just just, just stay there. I'll, I've got something to show you. And the audience is going, do not go in a room with him, you idiot. And, you know, he does twig, but it's just so funny the way he plays it seriously. But he's clearly not, you know? It's so obvious to everyone else he's not. <laughs> But then I also like is it, it added some character depth to, you know, to Ray and the fact that he's all like, there's just something about you. And he's just, you know, he wants to pass on what he knows, but he also has to make sure it's the right person and everything. And I think the movie works because of Atkins and Ray's chemistry and the way that they develop that background. Because if, if Ray is not that integral in the first movie, I don't think it works as well, honestly. Well, I also think. You know, I know this is Scott Adkins' movie, but Leon Finnan, who played young Fallon, nails a young Scott Adkins. Not necessarily in terms of like how he sounds, but he gets the mannerisms of Mike Fallon down. And you believe that that is the same person when he was younger with Ray as when he gets older. And that's not even high budget films struggle to do that because there's no guarantee when you cast like a young actor. Can you basically mimic or or do your own interpretation of what another actor is already doing? It's not the easiest thing, you know. <laughs> but they, uh, like you say, they get the chemistry just right, and the, you know they have their little mini fight scene, and Ray gets angry, and then uh, everything just feels like hey, this is the evolution of this character. And you're right, without that history, it doesn't work, and it's not as impactful in the sequel. And I think the funniest thing is, is I'm pretty certain I'm right in saying this, that whole flashback sequence was actually only introduced so that scott adkins could go off and have more fight scenes and they needed you know um padding to fill the film with so that they had something to shoot while scott was going off and doing the choreography and the rehearsal and it's it's one of the most important parts of the film <laughs> to me anyway yeah if i remember reading right like jesse johnson went off and shot that while um scott and tim choreographed the the fight with him and Mac and then Amy John, you know, they took extra days to do that while he filmed that. And I was like, yeah, without that in the movie. It, and I think the other thing about the movie is the soundtrack, the yes. score, but also the the few licensed songs that they get mm -hmm. while not popular. Not more. Well, I shouldn't say not popular. Well, not. You're right. You shouldn't because they're by the jam and they are no, super they are. popular. Over no, no. Here. Right. right. <laughs> but what I'm, what I'm saying is to some lowly U.S. guy sitting here going, but that song's awesome, but it's not something I hear every day. That kind of elevates the DTV from just your standard, like, and this is going to be very, but Casio keyboard kind of soundtrack. And it, uh, I'm like from the, that was one thing I was like, okay, please let the sound effects. Cause Savage Dog was fun, but man, those sound effects are lame. Like the punches don't sound like anything. It sounds like I'm going. And when I heard Jesse was doing this, I was like, okay let the sound effects budget work and let there be a good score goddamn it because that's what helps elevate a movie for me and sure enough they did it and i was like oh good wonderful but no those songs are great and i think that that song in particular that plays during the flashback is absolutely perfect because it's 
the right melody, the right kind of tone of that, just kind of displaying them together. And yeah, no, that man, I, am I going to have to redo my ranking after this? Because I put Accident Man too higher, but that's because, oh, yeah, it's new and it's fresh uh-huh. and the action is is great. But the more I think about this movie, it's like, yeah, OK, maybe. Maybe, maybe Scott's my got top a point. five. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Scott. And not Atkins. I mean, my buddy Scott, I'm talking to right now. <laughs> oh, I know. It's so I, I remember, I think it's in the very first. Oh, what? Somewhere. There is a podcast with me on, and it's action-focused, and someone introduces me as just Scott. They don't say my last name. And I immediately am like, yes, I am Scott, and I'm from the UK, but I'm not the one you were hoping I'd be. <laughs> it's like, let's get rid of that disappointment right out the door. <laughs> I actually just thought about that right this minute. I'm like, I'm talking to that in the UK about Accident Man, and it's... Honestly, the Scott that I'd rather be talking about it with because <laughs> do, do you know what's funny is if I is if in in the distant future, if I ever do get Scott Adkins on the show, it's going to be the funniest thing for people trying to listen to this because we're both called Scott. We're both English. We have different accents, but I know for a fact I'm going to get someone comment. Oh, I can't tell you two apart. And it's like, we don't sound anything alike. <laughs> nothing alike. Nothing alike. <laughs> Plus, I'm the one kind of that opens the the show you can hear my voice and <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but someone's gonna say it i know they will <laughs> i mean now that you said it it may even be me on twitter saying it to you <laughs> oh, God. also saying so what he's in birmingham you're in so you're what like 15 20 uh, minutes <laughs> apart <laughs> i mean to be honest it's probably more likely to be in america because you know <laughs> or yeah somewhere somewhere filming because the guy yeah. is working all the time <laughs> I've totally lost my train. Oh, the jam. Yes. So yeah, I'm pretty, jam. I'm pretty certain that, uh, there are actually two jam songs playing in the flashbacks. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, one in the beginning. Uh, I did actually know the names when it was playing, but music is weird for me. If I'm not listening to it, I struggle with recall. But, uh, the first one is really popular. Like it has been used in so many films that I was not surprised to hear it, but it fits perfectly. I'm pretty sure it came out in that time period as well. So it probably would have been what young Fallon was listening to on his cassette player for the kids out there. And uh, the second song, I think, is also popular, but it's not one you hear as much. So it was sort of like, oh, that's nice to hear. And then they, like you said, they have other songs in the film, but those ones have been made specifically for the film and it's part of the score. And like the end credits song, I'm pretty certain was, it's not like a big popular song to my knowledge. Uh, I think it was made specifically for the film. I might be wrong there. I don't look into the soundtrack that much when I talk about action films, but this one, I was going to specifically mention the jam because, yeah, I was very happy when I heard that. Like, one of the things that I've said to people that maybe don't get this as much if they're outside of the UK is whenever a film is set in, well, London, but in the UK we'll go with, um, there is a, (laughs) sorry, I've just realized what my obvious example is and I've beaten on that film so many times I don't know if it's fair, but Say if do you're it, a big, do big, it. big budget superhero <laughs> film starring Vin Diesel called Bloodshot and you set your film in the UK and then film it in South Africa, which looks nothing like the UK. And you don't even bother to change the number plates on the vehicles. But again, I've had that rant before, but it's little things that can make it feel like it's the UK. And one of those things is to get songs and music that's actually from the UK and to film it on 
in their case, you know, it looks like it was filmed on a council estate in Manchester or Birmingham, because obviously, like you said, Scott's from there. So, of course, that's going to be his frame of reference. Where he grew up in England looks nothing like where I grew up, but all of the landmarks and the references are the same. The music doesn't really change. And by that reasoning, this feels like a British film, and it feels like, yes, I can buy all of this. Whereas, don't want to talk about the second film, so I'll try to think of a different example. But, if you know, there are some DTV films that are made in the UK that they don't actually feel like they're made in the UK. They might be set in the UK, but all the people that made them are American or European. You know, it's a very different sensibility. Jesse and Scott and Stu are all British, so... I was thinking the uh, the wrestler guy, the Stu uh, Stu Bennett, the tall. Yeah. You know, he was in Eliminator. I think some. What what are those movies he did? The, not the Eliminator. What is that? I am Vengeance. Oh, why am I? Uh, yeah, I am Vengeance. That's set in the UK, and it doesn't. Yes. And I'm not. And I'm not a. You know, we know I'm a Michigan boy, so I don't know much. But this feels to me when I look at it, I was like, that feels more authentic. Atkins' version of it does than theirs, mainly because they didn't, like you said, there's no. There's no like specific music. There's no one set that looks like it, all that stuff looks like you're in sets and you're just going from set to set. Whereas this, they establish everything. They establish that. I mean, Fallon's incredibly British. There's British sayings like you were saying before talking, like some people don't even know what they mean even here because and I'm yes. sitting there looking up. What is it? What does that mean? I'm like, huh, OK, so. It just seems like they didn't. I'm a big fan of when a DTV movie shoots way above its budget. I don't care if they fall flat on their face with it, but I'm a bigger fan of when they don't sacrifice the story they want to tell just because of the budget they have. And this movie, I think, because I guarantee a lot of it went to get Ray Stevenson just because he's a bigger name and he's a bigger actor. But there's there's not as many flashy kills like in the sequel or other movies it's very grounded actually so the fights aren't super yeah you know faster i mean they're fast because atkins in it and they're complex that a lot of people can't do them but they're not super flippy kicky and stuff like that that atkins is known for and i remember one of my friends was a little disappointed by it because i showed him all the other ones leading up to it and then he goes he doesn't do any of his cool kicks i was like yeah but this is a different character so he might not do those same kicks <laughs> I'm like, give it like, give it like four to five years, and he might do another movie with the same character where he does those kicks again. But give that time. Well, that, that's actually one of my pet peeves with action stars in general that you've kind of hit on that I think is actually worth addressing is just because Scott Adkins doesn't do the Boyka kick or a triple kick or Donnie Yen level acrobatic, you know, fighting, it doesn't mean he can't, and that he didn't do it because it's too difficult. It's because he's playing a character that's an assassin, not a high-level, best fighter in the world martial artist. And it really annoys me when people watch a film and go, oh, I just wanted to see Scott Adkins do a triple roundhouse kick. And you're going, okay, so rewatch one of the Boyka films then. This isn't yeah. that. It's a completely different thing. And one of my favorite moments uh, from his character is when he does fight Mick and Mac, and he even says, Jesus Christ, these boys are the best but they're predictable because they're military trained and I'm not military. And then he proceeds to take them apart. And it's like, as an assassin, in my head, he's not going to waste energy doing a boyka kick when punching them in the dick gets a much better result. And that's like, he's not a clean fighter. He's not trying to be a clean fighter. He wants to eliminate the threat and kill them as fast as possible. He doesn't, 
because Mick and Mac are sort of his mates. But much earlier in the film, when he has his post-murder tension and he goes into the bar to relieve it and he picks on those assholes, that's a brutal fight. And almost every move involves breaking a bone, dislocating a bone, snapping a tendon, or just putting them down. Because nothing irritates me more in a fight film where someone gets absolutely beaten up and then they stand right back up like nothing actually happened. So I love it when they do these sorts of scenes where one, two, three, you're down, they're out. And he, and he nails that in this film for me, which is why he doesn't need to do big flashy stuff. Exactly. Plus, when you get to the actual background and you see that Ray's the one that trained him, Ray's not going to do flip, you know, spinny high no. jumping kicks. No. So, but therefore, Fallon is not going to do those either. He has the ability to, and you see a couple of them in his fight with um, uh, Mick and Mac, but they're more like he, you know, springs off of off of Mac to kick Mick, you know, and then he does the cool, you know, 720 kick where he hits Michael J. White twice in the face with the, you know, opposite feet. But that's just because it looks flashy. It's a cool way to end that fight scene. But the whole thing is not going to be Boyka level fights because you're right. He's not a tournament fighter or this. It's not about the martial arts at that point. It's about brutal, you know, just taking them out as fast as I possibly can. And this is the character. This is how I was trained. Why would I waste extra energy when I can, you know, like you said, punch him in the dick? And that honestly, let's be thankful that not all fight scene, not all fight movies take themselves that seriously or character that serious because. Some of those movies would be pretty boring. Can everybody just be punching each other in the dick? Yeah, exactly. And and in reality, if a fight film does take itself seriously, most fights are over the first person that cracks a guy in a jaw and they get knocked out. And, you know, none, none of it's real, in inverted commas, but there are ways to make it feel real without losing the entertainment value. And I'd say Accident Man is a prime example of how you can do that. You have the demonstration that against an average person... He's going to just snap something and you're going to be done. But against Mick and Mac, both are special forces. Um, it's not as easy as that. But at the same time, he's angry. He might be able to just end it in five minutes, but he doesn't actually want to. He wants it to last. Like you said, at the end, he essentially is just styling on them, making it very clear. I'm better than you. I'm not going to kill you because you're right in what you're saying, but I'm still pissed off at you and I want this to hurt. Right. Yeah. He's like, you were hired to do your job, which is what our job is. And I'm not going to that. I'm not mad at you for doing your job. What I'm mad is everything else that led up to it, all of the back, the back plotting and that I wasn't made aware that, you know, my former girlfriend was the target and this or that. So, yeah, he's not out to kill them because of what who they killed or why that's their job. But it was more of a I'm pissed off. This is the only way that I know at this point in time as my character to let that out or i'm just going to go nuts on any single person i pass by in the street yeah and to be fair you could take that one step further and say when he walked in the room he was mad at them because in his mind there's no way ray would authorize a hit on his ex but of course when they turn around and say it was a standard kill brief from milton oh well that does kind of change things but by that point the damage has been done and unfortunately mac ray park's character cannot shut up to save his life quite literally and just keeps poking the bear none of that would have happened if they'd just gone like mick tried to do we're really sorry it was a job you get that that's what we do but mac had to push it 
And then Mick had the line of, now go home and watch some goddamn cartoons, which makes me laugh every time I hear it, because it's like, these are grown men. And he's like almost saying, go have your, you know, Cocoa Puffs and watch some cartoons. Yeah, but you're right. Mac Ray Ray Park does play a really this sounds rude, but a really good douchebag in this movie. Like he doesn't know when to shut up. He's inappropriate on all levels, even with fellow killers. Like when he talks to you, know, it's it's not a very PC movie. No, it's I mean, it's 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 also not. Like so far that it's like going out of its way to be rude. It's just it's it's, it's just, you know, it is what it is. You and I know when you follow these kind of action guys and stuff like that. Um, but it's also got a mean streak to it, which I think a lot of people, myself included, I like, but I like the Fallon we get the second one a little bit more, and we'll talk about that months later. But this one does have a meaner streak to it in terms of the way Atkins' character is. And his character, Fallon, while he shows some redeeming qualities, is a real dick <laughs> through, it, oh, he through, is. And through and through. But I think there's a part of me that that's kind of what Scott... I think that's what they wanted when they wrote it. But then, like you said, unfortunately, if a movie does better and is immediately received with the kind of acclaim that part two was, he's going to focus on the good parts about that so he can make three. So I get that. But you can't tell me you wrote this movie with with not thinking Fallon was going to be a complete dickhead the whole time through because he is and he plays it perfectly. Well, I think some of that as well comes from the fact that there is no sequel comic book to adapt you know that this is this is accident man through and through and the comic book is not pc in fact it's so not pc that scott is quite open in saying they had to change some things to even make a lot of things (laughs) and you know jane the ripper one of everybody's favorite inclusions doesn't exist in the comic there is no way that that original uh, accident man comic would be that nice to any female character by his own words, Mike Fallon is an asshole and he's got really, really dated values and opinions on women and relationships, which they kind of do address in the film. Like the arguments that he has with Charlie, Ashley Green's character, really, really demonstrates he's not a nice guy, but it's not coming from a place of malice. It's coming from a place of ignorance because he genuinely doesn't know any better. His only real life coach, I suppose, is the best way of putting it, is Ray. And Ray's an assassin who himself really is not the greatest role model, as we've established. He, uh, he, he don't really like anything unless it's old fashioned and British. So what, how else was he going to turn out, you know? But even that's, just, that's, yeah. sorry, but he, no. you know, the whole point of the film in my eyes is the journey he goes on is kind of making himself question, are these my values, or have I just never asked myself these questions? Because one of the the best sequences in terms of storytelling for me is when he he's punching the boxing bag because he you know he doesn't want to keep going into bars and getting into fights because that's a really easy way to get on someone's radar in the police department. But whilst he's having this narration and it's like, yeah, I'm a I'm a cold killer professional and this is it. And then all of a sudden why can't I get her out of my head? And then it flashes to Beth, and it's like, he can't deal with this because he doesn't know how. He's never had to. He's never been in this situation before. He's not equipped to deal with this, so he's dealing with it the same way that Ray deals with it, which is to insult and call everybody else every name under the sun because he doesn't want to admit that he's hurt and he doesn't know how to deal with it. 
Right. Yeah. That's, that is the, the key to it is you're right. It's not from a place of hatred. It's not from malice. It's just, this is all he's ever known. And it's, we're all ignorant until we find out something and then we can learn and grow as people. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not the same person I am now at 42 than I was even at like 35. I'm continually growing and continually changing. So yeah, I actually like that our character does, you can actually see some growth. Like when you first, when he first meets, you know, um, Ashley, Ashley Green's character and he says, you know, he goes, I have no problems with gays or lesbians. And she's like, you idiot. Like, <laughs> he's like, and as you can see that his character goes, I guess that was kind of a stupid thing to say, but he's not going to admit that because that's not Mike Fallon. No. And then like something as simple as just taking the little, his little coffee cup and throwing it on the ground. It's like, yeah, this is guy is not somebody who thinks of his actions. He just does. And then wow. moves on with things. Yes, but also he kind of knows that Charlie Adams is just like Beth and that she's an environmentalist. So Chuck and it's going to piss her off. Yeah. yeah. So he does he does things to like kind of jab at people, too, in his own Because I, I will say for as easy as it is to just sit here and say Mike Fallon is an asshole through and through. Charlie isn't really that likable in my eyes either. And, you know, she rings him and invites him to the funeral and then gets annoyed at him that he turned up. The the person that leaves him that message and the person that he meets at the funeral are like two different people. There's no crossover in their personality whatsoever. Yes, you can say she's upset and annoyed, but then she goes out of his way to tell him that Beth was pregnant. Oh, and by the way, we were never going to tell you. And it's like, well, why the fuck are you telling him now then? It, it, yeah, that is not a that, good character trait. <laughs> no, that, that whole scene, and I don't say this very often, but that whole scene feels like, I have to do this because this is what the script needs in order for the rest of the film to happen, not because it's what a real human would actually do. The second time they meet, when it's at her apartment and they argue, and they, that feels natural. Oh, that mm -hmm. feels much more real. But that scene at the funeral, it really does feel like, I, uh, you have to say this because otherwise he won't question it and the rest of the film won't happen. But it's just like, it's so weird. And it's so like, oh, she's such a... A, an unlikable character and he's such an unlikable character and when they meet it's just boom oil and kerosene right but we also have the added benefit of following scott atkins career so even though we meet another unlikable character unfortunately her unlikableness is amplified because we're all we we already like scott atkins so we're like well his character is an asshole but you're another level of asshole that's even worse than he is so why should he yeah so you're right that scene has always kind of bugged me too because i'm just like she seems totally different in the phone call and then in the subsequent scene at her own apartment later that one scene is just it's done to antagonize him and to kind of put him down a peg and it's just like we didn't need that per se <laughs> the same exact thing could have been done if she just said she was you know, pregnant with, you know, she's like, oh, leave it to you to show up late. I could see her being mad that he would be late. Yeah. To the funeral or something like that. But they went the complete, like you said, opposite route where she's irritated beyond belief. Hit. Then why, why, why'd you call him and tell him when it yeah. was and where it was at? It, yeah, it just doesn't mesh well. She's like, oh, I, I, you know, Beth hated you and you're exactly how she described you. Like she never had a good word to say. And it's like, do you not remember the phone call where you just said, Beth wanted me here? I'm here and I stayed out of the way and I came over after you left so that I wouldn't upset you. Of course, he doesn't say that because he's Mike Fallon and he gets defensive and he just says things that are going to hurt her. But that's what he did. He was trying to not have this conversation because he knew it wasn't going to end well. But 
yeah other than that I, I i like her character and i like the interactions they have but that that specific scene has always annoyed me not because she's emotionally upset and she says hurtful things that i can fully believe i've unfortunately been in a funeral where that sort of thing happened but it's one of those things where it really does feel like i must tell you about your unborn kid because otherwise you won't get obsessed with this you know mm -hmm. But other than that, it all works wonderfully. <laughs> yes. And they, uh, there's a nice little bit of uh, improv in that scene in her apartment when he says something snide and she punches him. And he just goes, pretty good punch. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah, I'm like, if we haven't done, we haven't talked a lot about him because we've been talking about everybody else. But man, if there isn't a kind of proof that Scott Atkins can be in bigger budget movies and, you know, his acting ability you know, people that always questioned it before. If you watch this movie, you can't watch his performance and just hear his cadence and the confidence that he now has as an actor going, you know, spending the last 15, 20 years developing that and becoming more confident with it and getting better directors that push him and don't just say, you're great at the action. Let's just move on to the everything else. The ones that kind of challenge him to, to act and to put more into it. He is great in this movie. He's supposed to be the character. That, I mean, he's playing a character which has you know as mike has mentioned like atkins has he is very funny like he's very self-deprecating and i think the sequel plays way more into that than this one does but this one shows he can deliver dialogue he can command a screen and he can stand with the likes of ray Win you know ray stevenson who's been in bigger budget movies and doesn't look out of place no i agree i feel like this was a stepping stone in the right direction because in the same year, we also got The Debt Collector, which yep. uh, was also co-written by Stu Small. So uh, I'd forgotten that. So there well, you go. I, me too. I keep forgetting. Don't go back and just edit out when I said they need to write more serious movies. Just go ahead and edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dumbass. Go ahead. Just edit it out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I think Debt Collectors, which is definitely, uh, sorry, Debt Collector, because I know for some people Debt Collectors was a sequel. It wasn't called Debt Collector 2 depending on where you are in the world, just Ugh. to confuse everyone. Um, but yeah, both Accident Man and The Debt Collector, which are both also directed by Jesse, you know, they did a great job of showing that Scott is capable of doing much more than spin kicks and backflips. And this film in particular really showed the difference in characters that he can do. And I also think a big part of that, and like you said, Mike has said this on his own podcast, a big part of it is because he's not trying to do an American accent. I still get so irritated when I go back to watch older movies like, you know, Ninja and Ninja 2. I was like, why in the fuck is he? He doesn't need to be American. There's nothing about it other than to try to sell it to us dumb Americans. But guess what? When I watch a movie, British people sound cooler. I, that might be just a base thing in my head, but he sounds way cooler and way more comfortable than when he's using his. Just let him use his own accent. Get It, it makes. Yeah. So. Movies that he gets to do that in. And then, so yeah, you got this. Um, it seems like now he's got to the point in his career where he can go, like, as you know, he made Seized, which is not the greatest, but it's also not like the worst. But he's also like, I'm not doing an American accent. I'm going to be British. And we don't have to explain why, because we understand expats and everything else like that. People aren't dumb anymore. I'm just going to be British. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's the same as um, he's British in The Deck Collector. Uh, he's British. Well, I mean, he's British in Avengement, but that makes sense. It's set in England. But, you know, a lot of the stuff he's been doing recently where 
it's not in England, like his role in Section 8, pretty sure his character in Castle Falls, uh, the Intergalactic Adventures of Max Cloud, all of them, he has a British accent. I think One Shot and Day Shift are the only two that I could think of that he's done recently where he's used different accents. And Day Shift doesn't count because that was a new accent, one he hadn't done before, which a lot of people really liked. Um, And the One Shot actually kind of proved that he finally Can't nailed American. <laughs> well, I think that I think that also happened because he had the confidence of doing these other movies, and he's like, "Yeah, I this, I'm an actor, first and and foremost." He doesn't. I mean, I'm sure, like all of us, you still doubt yourself in some way, shape, or form, but he's a lot more confident now. So when that confidence shows through, yeah, one shot is by far the best American accent he's done, and. Yeah, I think it's, I think it boils down to the confidence that started kind of around this time with this movie moving forward. He's I I mean, there hasn't been a, a movie he's made since that since this that I've looked at it or I've showed friends and they're like, oh, wow, that was like I have some friends that love the debt collector because of the dialogue and stuff like that. And they weren't expecting a direct video movie to have that much story and that much character in it. And I was like, no, that's kind of what you get in this the top tier DTV realm. Now we get awesome action, but you also get story and decent, you know, fun characters that you wouldn't get elsewhere. Yeah, no, I agree. I also think that this film in particular does a great job of melding different people together because Ray Stevenson and Scott Adkins and Ray Park, especially they're all British. Oh, and uh, Rosso Hennessy as Mm. Carnage Cliff. They're all playing British. None of them sound the same which kind of helps to dispel a myth that you just said of the British accent. Right. There is no such thing as the British accent. Just like when you were saying, you know, Scott's doing the American accent. It's like, well, which part right. of America? Which city in America? I'm dumbing it down for me, okay? I know. No, 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 I know. But I think I... when, because I, oh, I can't remember, it was one of our friends did a, did a sort of thing on this, and I agreed with them that when an actor does any other accent on the planet apart from american 90 percent of people that watch the film will go wow that's amazing i didn't know you could do such a good accent but when they then do an american accent oh that american accent shit and it's it's because it's your accent (laughs) you know what it's supposed to sound like i bet if you went over to uh, one of the countries that do those accents they'd say that that accent that they did that you thought was great was shit It's true. <laughs> and I and I, I we play the blanket, like I said, British accent, American accent, because there's there's, you know, the Boston American accent. There's the Midwest. Like I have American accent. There's the Southern accent. And some some translate easier because when you can kind of be Southern, you can have a little more twang to it. So you can hide some of those words that are hard just for certain accents to translate to. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I think. Um, it is really cool that they're all, and I don't really think of it that way. You're right. They're all British. They all sound different. They all have a history that comes with that accent that, or that sound of their accent that you don't have to go into, but you can know they're not from the same place, but they've all found themselves in this group together. Yeah. Cause, uh, whenever someone says the British accent, my brain always goes, there's only two accents that American films tend to use. And it's either... It's either the, the Hugh Grant posh accent, darling, could you pour me a cup of tea, please? Or it's the, you're all right, mate, pasta booze, 
And it's that's the only two accents that exist in most American films when it comes to Britain. <laughs> very true, very true. Uh, that's one of my one of the things I like about watching DTV and then like talking with you and getting to learn more. It's like, oh man, there's so many cool accents out there. Like there's so many different dialects within side of that you know countries. And it's like I like exploring those and hearing them and expanding my own horizon. But I still will always fall back to the when I say British accent, just know. It's a compliment. <laughs> oh no! <I laughs> because know. it sounds great. I know. I'm just giving you some shit too. That was more of a, <laughs> a, a thing, just to say in general, because I feel like actors, especially these days, doing accents is not. It can be taken the wrong way, depending on what accent you're doing and why you're doing it. And I feel like actors want to challenge themselves. And if you're someone like Scott that got stuck doing the Boyka accent in pretty much every film he was in for a while, because that's what made him popular. So that's what producers wanted. Uh, and if you then, ha when you finally don't have to do the accent, well, you have to do American. Well, I can't do American. Well, that's what you've got to do. So now doing his own accent is kind of like, I've done other accents for like 10 years. So this is what I want to do now. And other actors might be the reverse where they've always done their own accent. So they want to do someone else's accent. And I feel like, Actors always want to challenge themselves, no matter what way around it is. But these days, it's kind of an ever-evolving, fluid situation of whether or not doing an accent for where you are personally not from is a good thing or a bad thing. But I feel like most actors are not thinking about it that seriously. They just want to do something fun. Well, and it's, it's funny, too, because even like Atkins Willow said, this isn't my typical accent like you know no. because from he's like this, this this isn't my my birmingham accent i was like oh interesting and then when you hear him talk like on um, a podcast or an interview like that is slightly different than even accident man or avengement especially avengement that's like a completely unique oh yeah beast that whole movie is everything but uh yeah so even then it's just like oh wow yeah i guess yeah that's so interesting that you can even like and we don't even give him credit for that we just go, oh, yeah, that's just his normal accent. It's like, no, it's actually not his normal accent. He's even has to think about that when he's making this movie of where at in London or England would I be that I would sound like this. That I, I, I tip my hat <laughs> to those actors. I can do that. <laughs> so for the two people still listening to this action movie podcast that turned into a podcast about accents, uh, let's talk. Accent about man. <laughs> accent man. <laughs> Accent Man, the greatest actor of them all. Let's uh, let's go back to the actual action because the choreography of this film was done by the always excellent Tim Mann, and uh, Tim Mann's actually in this film, and uh, it's one of my favorite fights uh, in the sea in the scene in the film, and it's the assassin that tries to take Mike out uh, after instead of paying him, and he comes in on the bike. And I love the dialogue in that scene where he's essentially just critiquing him like a he's a teacher. He's like, you're a disgrace to my profession. I, I love that scene. And the fact that Tim Mann is basically doing his Bruce Lee impression and just getting beaten up is just even funnier. But also the fact that Scott and he's, you know, he's openly said he tries to work this into so many films now. But the fact that he gets the Richard Norton painful. I, I love that so much. I got that straight away and I was like, yes. <laughs> So did I, my friend. So did I. After watching all those movies, I was like, oh, he's doing Richard, yeah, Richard Norton right now. And that is my favorite fight scene of the movie, too. One of it's 
it's simplistic in the way because it's not overly complicated, but I love it because he's like, at first he's using it as a training experience. He's like, oh good, I get to, you know, I just killed somebody. I'm going to pick up my paycheck. I don't have to do my whole PMT or punch the bag off of the rack like I just did in the previous scene. Uh, but it kind of, ex it shows the cockiness of Fallon's character, which can sometimes be to his detriment as we see later. But uh, no, the the fights are, the fight's great. I love Tim Mann's Southern style versus, you know, and his like overly eccentric, you know, Kung Fu moves versus Atkins just, you know, straight up, I'll kick you right in the face or, and the fact that he's wearing the helmet, man, he kicks the shit out of him in that. It's like the oh, yeah. closest we'll ever get to uh, uh, UNBU Eastern Condors full contact spin kick in modern mm. day cinema. Closest. Yeah, I mean, I was also like the first time I watched it and, and you get that shot of him cracking him over the helmet. My first thought was, wasn't Yumbu, it was actually Tony Jaa's Ong Bak. And I was thinking, you know, that kick as well. It's like, oh, I, I think that's what they were channeling. But Yumbu as well. Yeah, I, either one works. Yeah, either one does. Uh, especially that that Eastern Condors kick. I've showed more people yes. that YouTube clip than... I was like, just watch. This is why I watch action movies. And I was like, you can see the power powder just fly off the dude's face. It's that poor guy took a hell of a kick. But um, there, there's there's a real cool thing that plays out in the whole scene. And I, I like when when Fallon's had his fill of this training <laughs> exercise. He's just are, like, are, you, are you about to say the line of dialogue I've written down? <laughs> no, go ahead. Please do, because you'll sound so much cooler than I do trying to do a terrible accent <laughs> well to be fair I, i'm gonna deliberately not do tim's accent uh but oh. he he's so you know because he's i love i love that exchange so much because it's so action movie it's guilo i tell you nothing and then he just grabs him wraps his arm around him and says that's all right mate i don't want to know anything and then snaps his neck i die laughing every time <laughs> he just Cause... nails that delivery <laughs> It's perfect the way he's like, that's okay, mate. I don't want to know anything. <laughs> just, just, just he's like, I'm done. And, we're, and then he's like, and then he's talking to Milton and he has to, and he's like dragging his body in place, even though there's a shitload of bullet spray everywhere on the cars next to it. It's like, nobody's going to notice that. They're going to notice the guy who's next cracked because he rode his bike into a bullet ridden alley. But um, do you know what's funny is every time, even though I've seen this film, you know, four or five times uh, and he says, you know, Oh, I've done this. He came around the bike too quick and he came off the handles, went into the car and then he's like, oh, and as for the bullets, well, I can't work miracles. Every time my brain thinks he's just going to say, well, it's East London. What do you expect? You know, it's like, I really don't understand why you did that. Why that wasn't what you said. <laughs> not, not being from there. I, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> it, it. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, it's not that bad but it's it would just be a funny one line and it's like well you, you parked in this particular area of course your car's gonna get some bullet holes overnight what do you expect <laughs> we have that too you know uh detroit so we always say the same thing where i'm from it's always like so i get it we already kind of talked about the fight between uh mick and mac and uh fallon but i do love the actual sequence that follows where he goes back and has to try and explain himself to Ray. And then as the conversation goes on, Ray goes behind the bar and he has that shotgun on a hinge. And that whole sequence is just perfect. Obviously, it then starts the flashbacks. And I've even actually made a note in, in, a note in my notes. I hate that sentence, but that is what I've done. And it <laughs> says the identity of the film is it's British, which 
I think is actually one of the reasons. And again, I know I said I wasn't going to do this anymore, but I'm going to say it because it applies. I like the fact that this film has its identity in London, in England. The sequel doesn't have that. And that's not a bad thing. It makes it different. But I really like that this film has a clear blueprint of what it's trying to be. And it just nails it instead of trying to be something else, which again, is not a bad thing. But the fact that this film go, like you said, it's trying to reach for the highest standard it can possibly reach and it achieves it, which is not something that all DTV films do. Don't get me wrong. There's sequences in this film that don't quite nail it. When I showed this film to my friends the first time, they all died laughing when he uh, shoots the car and it flips around and kills the guy and the wall buckles. And it's they, they were all like, what was that? Was it like a paper mache wall? And uh, yeah, you know, it's not the greatest shot, but it's like a five second shot. I don't care, you know? Yeah. And also, we've watched these enough to know that that stuff's going to happen. They don't have unlimited budget, so you're no. going to get something that yeah, that's what the the scene called for. So yeah, it's going to look like uh, maybe in my mind, it was a partially completed wall and they were coming back to finish it. <laughs> yeah, which to be honest, knowing what some construction people are like in the UK. Yeah, I could believe that, you know, um, I also have to give this film some credit because uh, uh, we started talking about the flashbacks. And, and one of the things that I noted down is this film, if it only has one claim to fame is it put the word defenestration back into the common folk circulation. Because <laughs> I've definitely heard that word used in other films since, and TV shows for that matter. Correct. And I did not hear it before. I will be 100% honest. And you and I watch a lot of movies <laughs> and a lot of TV. Yeah. Um, yep. One, one other thing I wanted to add in the that scene that happens right after when he's, you know, uh, at the bar confronting him. The other little bit of dialogue I like too is Atkins voiceover saying not many people know about big ray's boomstick underneath the and then it kind of flashes to him angling it towards him it's again it shows that while ray and all these guys are friends atkins and ray have a different relationship than everybody else in the movie and it just further strengthens the next flashback scene that kind of establishes why they're so close yeah i don't like i said we already kind of talked about it but after they have their first meeting and they establish what they want to do you see young fallon kill someone and one of the things that i really liked is instead of in so many films of this nature you'd have that moment where the character throws up starts to feel guilty has to kind of adapt to the fact that he just killed someone he says all of that like that's apparently the normal response and then he's like yeah i didn't really feel any of that i felt fine and i'm like yeah because some people are like that and it it it, it frustrates me when everybody like if they don't have that moment of chaos and and guilt and doubt and people say oh that's not realistic and it's like well i'm pretty sure there's a lot of people in the army that tell you otherwise like to be be that guy you know right and that and that's why ray would agree to then take him on as his kind of you know pupil after that because he's like the the apprenticeship (laughs) apprenticeship's so great but i like when he's just beating the shit out of him and making him tap and just like and I, and I like um, Atkins' line about iron sharpens iron. And it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, that's why this is the character that he's become. He's He's been around this gruff guy who doesn't show a lot of care and a lot of love for somebody, even though they have it in their own way. And then that's one of the things I like we'll get about the sequel is they actually do talk about that a little bit. 
I kind of wish they focused more on it in the sequel, to be honest with you. And uh, it's just, yeah, that flashback scene probably is my favorite scene in Accident Man 1. Like, it's it's a perfect, from a musical standpoint, like we've already talked about, and just showing these two characters and what they will eventually become. It's like, yeah, with that's the crux of the whole movie, in my opinion. Without that, it just doesn't reach the same height. No. And, you know, it ends with them showing you all of the different skills that Ray passed on to him. It's like everybody else in the Oasis is basically just a specialist, but Mike Fallon has all of their skills. He might not have all of their skills to the same level, but the fact that he has a bit of poison knowledge, a bit of finesse kills, he has the martial skills to stand with the two commandos. All right, he's not really going to be a honey trap like Jane the Ripper is, but he has basically the other skills are identical. And the fact that he's, a, uh, in my opinion, is a generalist, and then he can use all of that general skills to be, well, I can make anything look like an accident, which is exactly what Ray did, even though they don't tell you that, but you can work it out that that's what he did as well. And seeing him, you know, teach him how to use, you know, the non-odorless flammable substances on furniture, which the UK had a problem with furniture catching on fire back then because they didn't realize the materials were not that great to use. So it's kind of like, I love that little bit of history that they pulled out was, oh, it wasn't the fact that it was flammable material. It was Ray going around killing people. <laughs> like he said, 10% of all accidents is actually a hit in disguise. <laughs> That's true. And I, we didn't, I, I love when he, when young Mike Fallon works up the guts to actually knock on Ray's door and he goes, I know what you do. I think you're great. I want to learn from him. He goes, what are you talking? He goes, are you taking a piss? And then he just gives him the little camera and you hear the chainsaw and the guy going, ah, ah, and then Ray's just like, looks around and just grabs and pulls that the, it, it's, it's actually a much funnier movie than we're giving it credit for. There is yeah. some great physical humor in it that goes a long way to add to it. Um, it's the same as like when I was saying about how naive he is and he says to him, you know, Oh, and, he, and he's going through that checklist that you were talking about. And then he just turns around to a killer and says, you might want to work on your counter surveillance technique, though. And it's just like, wow, <laughs> you have no clue, do you? <laughs> <laughs> the stones on that kid. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. So then, uh, you know, we, you know, I think we've really given the back the backstory a lot of credit. Yeah. As it's well deserved. Uh, we briefly touched upon it, but his fight with Amy Johnston, I, at that time in around 2018, there's a ton of you know great YouTube stars, but in terms of cinematic fighters, uh, you know, cinematic female fighters, Amy Johnston looks so credible. Like her kicks are crisp and powerful and like Atkins doesn't have to, you, you don't see the main character having to change his fighting style to accommodate who he's fighting against type of thing. Yeah. And I mean. As I said, um, many people that listen to this show probably know the website Film Combat Syndicate. And uh, a very long time ago, I want to say in 2014, uh, I was one of the people that interviewed Amy back when she was still a YouTube star. And you said about how nice she is. I can confirm she's the nicest person on the planet. We were supposed to chat for 40 minutes. We chatted for five hours. Um, and most of it was not about films. Uh, we went on an hour-long rant about Marvel and DC, which was hilarious to me. Um, obviously I cut all of that out because it had nothing to do with the interview, but it was great. And, uh, you know, she's the daughter of, uh, I think it's a five time world kickboxing champion, David Johnston. So of course her kicks are going to be really good. And it's like, he yeah, her her. Is there. Mm -hmm. and he was a great fighter. 
Uh, you know, he had a pretty good record in full contact sport. And Scott said at London MCM the year that Accident Man was being promoted, like, of everybody that he's fought, she's half his age, but almost better than him in skill. And he's like, give her another 10 years and I won't be able to keep up with her. And that's the greatest compliment you can give someone, you know? Yeah, when you're Scott Atkins and saying that in 10 years, this person's going to be, yeah. And it's, it, it, I mean, look at her. She's, it's also, she's like that, you know, prototypical, you know, blonde, cute girl who doesn't look like she's going to be able to kick your ass, but then you have good luck. Like, <laughs> um, but she's also, she plays a very, you know, like I like when you first meet her and she just downs the whole beer and burps and she's like, see you guys later. She's just like, yeah. you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very stark comparison to all the other kind of darker, more masculine crazy characters and i like that they have fun with this one and you know jane is a lady <laughs> um a lady who will kick the shit out of you and kill you with a katana <laughs> it, it adds to the comedy uh you know the the tiny blonde american is the most deadliest one of them all because she's constantly underestimated but she's also the most vicious she is evil and malice and she takes great pleasure in killing people and by the time you, you know, she does finally die, you've gone from maybe being like, well, I haven't really seen much of her to, yeah, I want her to die. Like she mm -hmm. took, she, like, she literally tells him, I begged to be the one to kill your girlfriend so I could have, you know, had some fun and killed her slowly. And it's like, wow, you are so irredeemable. <laughs> you ain't like the others at all. No, there's a couple different times where you can tell she wants to be the one that kills him. And, you know, Ray's like, Stan, no, I need you to go watch this person and keep them safe. And she's very irritated by that. And you're like, oh, this is just a person who loves to kill. Like, there's no, yeah. she, you know, there, there's not a lot of depth to that character. And guess what? There doesn't need to be at times. Sometimes your villain just has to be a horrible badass who can kick the crap out of anybody and shows no, no mercy whatsoever. Because that makes your heroes that much you know more heroic when they finally overcome them what i also like in the choreography is she is smaller than scott and she clearly doesn't have a weight advantage and there's a subset of people that would definitely get annoyed at the idea that she could pose a threat to him and what i like is the film addresses that because in the beginning of the fight she just tries to match him in strikes and that doesn't work so then she gets in closer and starts chucking him around by grappling him and kind of doing her Black Widow thing, which is appropriate because she did double for Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow in Winter Soldier. But the fact that they showed that evolution of that fight and how she can adapt to him, I thought was perfect because yes, she's skilled physically, but that showed that she was a mental match for him, which none of the other characters had been up until that point. Like he genuinely has to fight her. He doesn't just beat her which he does for pretty much every other character in the film yes mick and mac give him a challenge but that was more of a this is going to take a while but i know i'm going to win with her it was she might actually kill me if i mess up here right and we didn't even touch on it but the, the whole carnage carnage cliff and the apartment scene is just him going crazy and the reason that it's it's it is an actual accident that yeah. atkins kills him like and i, I love it he goes how am i going to make this look like an accident um you know, so yeah, this is the first fight where he's been matched mentally as well as from a physical standpoint. And you're right. I I had a, a friend who doesn't train in martial arts at all. And he goes, how can she throw him? I was like, uh, she's doing a full body judo throw. I don't care how much you weigh. If somebody gets underneath your waist 
and puts their whole body into it, you're going. And there's not much you can do to stop it. <laughs> so, and I, I like that those are the type of throws they incorporate. I love that she's she has no problem kicking him and punching him square in the nuts. If there's anything I have with these movies is when somebody gets hit in the nuts, they recover a little too quick, in my humble opinion, having been having just been accidentally grazed. I'm out for about 10 minutes. But um, <laughs> there's a and, and, and to, sorry to deviate, but there's a no, no. there's a scene in John Wick 2. And I love my John Wick films, but that particular scene stands out for me because no. And it is when he's in the subway, he's trying to get on the train, a couple assassins come after him. One of them, he has a knife, and he cuts in between the legs. And then the guy gets back up and carries on trying to fight him. And I'm like, no, no, that guy would go into shock, scream his head off, and if he was lucky, he might survive. But he certainly ain't going to get back up and act like nothing happened. <laughs> you know? <laughs> really think about that one for any length of time you know and i love john wick but wow that 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 bit just doesn't work (laughs) no and i'm all for keeping uh certain aspects of realism out of like when i have friends who go man that fight wasn't you know realistic i was like first off you've never been in a realistic fight we haven't had to fight for our lives we don't know what's quote-unquote realistic plus realism is boring if you want realism watch mma or boxing there you go that's entertaining in its own way but it's not cinematic and that's what these movies are trying to be so the whole is it realistic versus not realistic i gave up on that argument long ago because i don't care i i I just want to be entertained by a uh you know cinematic fight and i i i i I will use the term more grounded because they're using more grounded you know techniques like this movie as opposed to your you know high fancy kicks but um uh, yeah, so I like that their fight is a mixture of both because even when Atkins does some like fancy kicks in this, they're they're more to generate power as opposed to just spinning for no reason. Like when he does the little spin kick, spin push kick through the uh, door, and then she's like, "Oh, he's doing that. Uh, I'm not going to try to match him for power. I'm just going to grab my sword and try to cut his head off." Yeah, yeah. No, I love the way that the the power sidekicks are filmed because they really do feel like they put their full weight into them, which they obviously aren't. But the, they managed to film it in such a way that you can feel how much kinetic energy is going through them. And like you say, when he kicks her through the door, it, it works. You you, it, it's such a strange thing to say, but you can feel how much energy was put into her. In reality, there wasn't. You know, but it, mm. it works the way that they they captured it on camera. And you're right. Like I said at the beginning. I don't like using the word realistic either to describe any fight scenes, but I think when someone says this sequence is more realistic, what they mean is is that it's more grounded and it doesn't have as much over-the-top fancy flair. But it's nice to have a mix of both. And, you know, a stylized film can still work and be realistic whilst being OTT, as long as you set the rules that in this universe, in this world, this is what classes as the status quo if everybody is superhuman well then it is realistic in that world it's one of my pet peeves and one day i will talk about broken path that film could be solved so easily if they just had a line of dialogue to say they were all super soldiers and had a healing factor that's all they needed to do and i would so much easier like recommend that to people I know so many people are out after the first sequence that would have killed pretty much anybody that went through that, and they just pop right back up like it was nothing. <laughs> right. 
to where I'm like, okay, you and I are are, are made differently because I, I see that and I don't give a shit if they get up immediately because I want to see more fights like that. <laughs> but exactly. not but not everybody wants that. Or some people, like you said, need to have a frame of reference or in their mind why this is happening. And to them, I say, yeah, you're right. Super. Uh, you know what? I, I, I just might tell people uh, they didn't say it. These guys are super, super soldiers. Here, here you go. This is the coolest comic book fight you'll ever see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's it, it, uh, you were saying about this, the scene that happens afterwards. It, it leads to one of my favorite moments from Ray Park, who once Cliff dies, he kind of becomes the comedy relief in the bar because his jaw's wide shut. And every time he tries to speak, it's a, a pain. And I love the fact that he's like, is there a kill brief document or whatever it is he actually mumbles? And then Ray's reaction is like, what is your kill brief document? It's Fallon. Go and kill him. And it's like, yeah, I just, ah, it's, it's those little moments that work that just, they play off of each other so well. Everyone was so well cast in this film. Yep. And the fact that he's drinking beer out of a nice stein, but with a straw cracks me up to no end because if your jaw's wired shut the last thing you want to do is put alcohol in your mouth because it's gonna hurt like hell <laughs> and, and and a oh. character that we've not really talked about is milton and uh he's oh, yeah. played by david paymer and uh you know the reason we haven't spoken about him is because a he doesn't really have any fights but also he's just a despicable character um but he plays it really well you know he plays the arrogant asshole that nobody really likes but everyone has to tolerate perfectly and it's a rule of the Oasis that no one can punch him because Ray knows full well everybody wants to. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he's the he's the prototypical American who watches a few British movies and thinks I can go over there and, and you know he'll 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 try to say certain things and I love how awkward it comes off when he's like, "Hey, matey," and everybody's just like, oh, "God damn it," <laughs> which no. makes it when Ray finally does burst and kick the shit and spits on him because there's no spitting in the bar either. <laughs> I love yep. the Ray's three rules. I love that he breaks them all on Milton at the end. But yeah, Milton is a very d- despicable character. He's a very annoying, but like in a in the right amount of annoying way, because you're like, can't stand this guy. I can't wait to see what happens to him. And he is dis- dispatched in one of the more clever ways, in my humble opinion, <laughs> in the movie. Yeah. Um, and you and you get a little uh, fourth wall joke with the uh, packet of bandage being Adkins, which uh, I love. I'm pretty sure there's also a reference to Stu Small, like there's a small thing somewhere in Fred's collection, but that one I always, uh, I know it's there, but I, I can never remember it, but I, uh, it's right there alongside the Adkins bandage, which always makes me chuckle. Mm-hmm. And the other part about Fred that makes me laugh is when he sees him at that, you know, um, uh, massage parlor and, you know, the great scene of Fallon saying, all right, give me your, give me your phone book. If the last name ends in five letters or less, I'll I'll go with you. He just hits the shit out of him with a foam book. But I I love that bit. He slams into the chair. And I just love how quick he just like buff down. That and stuntman that man earned his pay that day because that is a hell of a stunt, really. Yes. And, you know, that whole sequence in the massage parlor is great. Adkins, you know, interrogates the Milton and he's constantly just knocking out this big Russian dude every few minutes as he keeps waking back up. And he takes out the other guy twice as well. And um, one of the things that I think works really well in this film, like we said, is Fallon just basically walks through everyone. You know, only his colleagues are any real challenge to him. And that's something that, again, I really enjoyed because you don't get that with a lot of his characters. Even Boyka, for as much as he is like unstoppable. 
he does have because of his life situation he can't just walk through people he's actually not in a position to do so whereas fallon is very much like he's living the high life he lives in this really nice apartment you know everything is top of the range state of the art he's got all the money to burn and he's got all the training so no one is getting in his way doesn't matter if you're a big guy a small guy kung fu brawling wrestling two special forces you know whatever it is you're just gonna die and that's a really hard thing to nail because i think too many films some of which michael jai white stars in unfortunately and you know seagal built his entire fucking career around the idea that no one can touch you and no one can beat you and that gets boring real quick but the fact that it's mixed in with people that can match him and the dark humor and the mystery element of what the hell is actually going on because no one seems to know that's the bit that works for me a lot of this only works because people are kept in the dark they think he killed cliff but he did kill cliff but if they actually knew how it happened then they probably wouldn't have put out a hit on him because scott uh fallon thinks that Cliff was sent to kill him, and then it turns out it was actually to kill Beth. It was a complete coincidence. And there's so much of that in this film that until you get to the end and you realize how much of it was connected, that random kill at the beginning wasn't a random kill. That random choice to have him go and pick up the money wasn't random. And Milton was pretty much the cause of all of it, which, as you say, at the end, Ray breaks and kicks the shit out of him, and it works perfectly. Mm hmm. Although it's only purposed by my other favorite Ray moments when Adkins puts the sword down and then says the name of the client, which you're never supposed to do. And he goes, he just grabs the beer that Ray poured for himself. And I love that Ray smacks the glass so hard that it shatters yes. and the beer flies everywhere. He's just like, and the sound effect that they use of that beer glass smashing. And then Ray just grabbing the gun from underneath because he's so pissed off. And But Adkins knowing, you're not going to shoot me like he's um, it just it plays so well into that. And it's like, no, you're not mad at me. You're mad at Milton. Well, you are mad at me, number one. But you also understand where I'm somewhat coming from, you know, given everything that happened. And if you knew all this was happening, you would never have allowed this to happen. So I'm glad I brought this to light. So, you know, that your oasis is not perfectly ran by you. It was actually Milton pulling strings behind your back. So it ties it nice, nicely together. And they. I, you can see why, because it's he's gone on record that they took a while to write the movie because he didn't want it to just be, you know, a standard script. And you're right. There's a lot of nuance to this script that doesn't yeah. get in a lot of DTV movies. It, it, it's also, you know, uh, the idea that Mick kills Mac because of friendly fire. And then he says, you know, um, Mick, I'll have to live with that. And I, I think a lot of people just assume that that meant that Mick would either be in the sequel or would be back in some capacity but they kind of imply in the sequel that mick died anyway so i don't know if that is going to stick or if it's just a case of jai wasn't available but um i love that whole sequence where he kills mick and mac or he kills one of them anyway but then when he goes outside he kills pete which is just like a five little second one and done but what <laughs> i love yeah, about pete's, pete's got his little syringe <laughs> his little and needles. he's like Nope, just kicks him over the edge. <laughs> and and injects him with his own poison. But what I love is he then runs down the stairs and Fred waddles out of the shadows and he's like, Oh for fuck's sake, Fred! <laughs> I just I just he's like, Why are you even here? And he's like, I know, Mike, I know. <laughs> I just that's such a good little exchange. Like I'm glad that of all the characters, 
it was Fred that came back for the sequel because he he's just so funny. He is very funny. They have a good rapport, like you said, just in that one scene, like, oh, for fuck's sakes, Fred. And he's just angry with him. He's like, Fred's not the one. Who's, and Fred's the most unique out of all of them. And the fact that he tries these crazy ways of killing people. Um, but I also like right before that, he knows that Poison Pete's dead because he injected him. He kicked him over the edge. He still has to take that extra second to just stomp on him because he hates Pete. Like of all the people there, yeah. he hates him and he could care less about what happened to him. He actually feels bad about the rest of them, which is why I like in the sequel. You don't even see a flashback to Pete. Actually, yeah, I guess actually you do. He does. Well, because it shows a cool action bit of him doing. Yeah, it yeah. But uh, but I just love that little that extra stomp because it's like, no, that's what Fallon would do to somebody he does not like. <laughs> like Even though you're dead, I'm still going to kick you. And I, I love the whole, you know, well, I'm open to suggestions. And then he just punches him in the face. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, Fred, bless him, he tries, but. There was only one way that was going to end. But, you know, he let him live because it's like he said, I'm just doing my job. <laughs> yeah. And Fred really was one of the few that didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, not, I mean, he, he didn't kill him. Mick and Mac did. So there's some added anger there. And then really the only reason he killed Jane was because she wanted to kill him to stop him from, you know, finding who the actual person that put this head out on Beth was. Fred really doesn't have anything to do with it. Pete's just there because he doesn't like Pete. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean... Pete even said, you know, you're my dream target, Fallon, because I guess Pete hates them as well because they don't really like him and whatever. But yeah, no, Jane, Jane is the only one that, in my opinion, genuinely, like her death is earned. Um, when she dies, I don't think there's any real sympathy for her character. She is just a dark character through and through. And like you say, the fact that she does use the katana is also nice because every other fight scene has been hand to hand or with guns. The katana moment really stands out because it's different and it helps break up the flow. And I think it, if it had just ended with more hand to hand as the fight starts, I think the audience might have got a little bit bored by that point. But the fact that they then bust out a katana is like, yeah, that sticks in your brain. And the way he kills her and then kicks her into the fountain is like, yep, she's definitely dead. <laughs> she ain't coming back. Nope. And then the fact that he uses that said katana on the you know, Mark, the yep. person who hired him, um, who, and, who offers uh, him like a hundred million and then cut, cut, you know, cut in on the billion pound deal. And he even says billion pound sterling, <laughs> True. which I like uh, Fallon before this. If, if he wouldn't have known if the Beth thing wouldn't have happened, he would have taken that deal. Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent. But you see the that slight character growth. And I like the after Ray kicks him out of the, you know, he's like, get out of my pub <laughs> he's just and he turns around and walks out i like the little you know would my kid have been proud of me probably not but uh and it, he basically reconciles everything that happened in the movie and then if they wanted to do a sequel it's a really good setup because he's on his way out and he goes the you know an accident's right around the corner so the sequel was set up even without knowing they were going to make one because yeah, they were yeah, smart definitely. how they wrote it um and then we get a cool comic book end sequence of, you know, animated characters. And you get to see a little bit of their, you know, some of their their more uh, memorable scenes throughout the, the movie, just in a cool animated form with that song playing over the end. And I was like, this is uh, yeah, this is the movie I show people to show who Scott Atkins is, because it's it, and I, I always preference. It. I'm like, this isn't indicative of his like martial arts prowess, but this is like his most complete movie up to that point in my humble opinion 
this is his most complete movie to watch. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most this is the most complete movie in the world. This is the most complete Scott Atkins movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now it's gonna be hard to not just do the Boyka accent for the entire rest of the show. <laughs> what I love is everyone has a different Boyka accent because everyone just basically is doing a different Eastern European accent. I have tried so many times to nail how he pronounces certain words, and I cannot do it. I have an Eastern European accent that I can bust out, but it doesn't sound like his. And it's it, in some ways, that's good because, you know, everyone's different. But it's so frustrating when it's like, I could do his voice. I'm British, but I can't do his goddamn Boyker accent. <laughs> <laughs> it's a unique accent, too. Like, the one that I always try to, like, say, I always, like, if I'm king of the fucking toilets, what does that make you when it beat the fucking shit out of you? Yeah. But it comes, you know, and uh, like if I'm doing like if I'm playing uh, uh, role playing games with some friends, sometimes I will just say that my character is Russian and I will speak the entire night in a terrible Russian accent just to piss everybody off. But halfway through, everybody just starts laughing and it becomes more of a joke. And it's just like, who cares how bad it is? <laughs> I mean, when you say role playing games, are, are we talking like Dungeons and Dragons? Yes, sir. We're, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not having silly accents part of the fun. It's supposed to be, yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think it's safe to say that we've uh, we've done a, a a nice, clean overall look of the film, and I doubt very much there's anyone out there that would listen to this show that hasn't seen Accident Man because it was super popular. I mean, even on IMDb, it's got over like six thousand ratings, which for a DTV movie on IMDb is quite rare. I mean, mm -hmm. the sequels only managed to amass 2,300. I know it's been out a lot less, but I was kind of expecting more push for the sequel, considering how much of an impact the first film had. But again, I still think that a lot of people, I don't want to say write the first film off, but I feel like like what you said right at the beginning in that it has a mean streak. Some people, I think, bounce off of that. And some people really gravitate towards that. And I really think that there isn't a wrong answer to how you like your accident, man. But I do think they're made for different people. You can enjoy both. And probably everyone does have a favorite. And I'm very curious to see where we will stand when we then do our episode on the sequel. But when I rewatched this, my only real thought was, yeah, I can see why I remember this one more so. And it is because of that clearer identity on what it's trying to be, the British film. It has, in my opinion, a much stronger cast, a much more well-rounded supporting ensemble character group, and it is just Fallon is the central character, and everybody gets out of his way because he is the accident man. And again, I'm not comparing it to the sequel. These are just the things that I like about it on its own, you know? They get all of that balance right, and I honestly don't think there's there isn't any real negative i can think of to be like oh it's a good film but it's like no there isn't really a negative i don't i i other than a couple of like i even said there's a couple of shots that just because it's a dtv film you've got to accept that but otherwise perfect movie yeah one of the cleaner looking dtv movies in terms of you know it looks it it outkicks its budget immensely so um the characters are all great. Like I said, they're all memorable because they get that little background just enough to make them feel important. And like, like, and like you said, they could have been in their own movies. Like I want a, a Mick and Mac movie. I would like to see 
you know, finicky Fred. Well, yeah, I would even like to see finicky Fred off on his own, doing his own little zany stuff. That would be fun. Um, I really want more Ray, of course, because Ray Stevenson is, I mean, the guy just can sit when we get to this, the sequel, one of my favorite moments is, is a, a, a nonverbal cue that he does, which we'll save it for when we talk about that. But he commands the screen when he's on and to see Atkins go toe to toe with somebody like that. That's why I can I have more confidence in showing this movie to somebody who's not a Scott Atkins fan because he he looks like a credible actor in this. Not that he doesn't before, but this is like his most complete package. He gets to to be funny. He gets to show drama he gets to show his action side and he gets to show just you know a full range versus some of the other movies where he wasn't allowed to do that before to that extent it is funny because i think the deck collector resonated with people more because the deck collector 2 got a sequel greenlit whereas accident man 2 took a long time to come now some of that i'm i'm right in saying he was going to film it earlier and then for whatever reason, it fell through. So they kind of lost some people that were attached, like Tim Mann doesn't return to do the choreography properly. Uh, but I feel like Debt Collector was for a long time the film that people were pointing to, as you just said, to be like, this is the one that shows that he could do acting and he could do comedy and he could do some really serious, dark stuff. And then Debt Collector 2 kind of lent into the more, I'm an actor and I can also do a lot of comedy stuff. Because there's a lot of comical moments in Debt Collector 2. Mm -hmm. And then Accident Man 2, when that came out, it feels like Debt Collector, both of them feel like what Jesse and Scott started with Accident Man carried on in the Debt Collector films. And Accident Man 2, because it has a different directing team, it has a different choreographer, but it still has Scott Adkins. That feels like Scott Adkins, this is what I want to do. It's like it's they both start with Accident Man and they both go in different directions. I think it's the nicest Excellent way point. to look yep. at it. Mm -hmm. And it's it is funny that out of all of Adkins movies, the ones that make my top list, they're all directed by not all of them, of course, but the majority of them are when he's directed by Jesse Johnson. I think Jesse gets something out of him that other directors don't push him to do sometimes. Or yeah. uh, this might sound terrible, but I think that when it comes to drama, I don't think Isaac Florentine has the same preference for it. Because, you know, the last few movies he's done with him haven't really leaned into that drama side thing. And it seems like they they more just which don't get me wrong. He's the goat of DTV in terms of putting Atkins on the map. But I think I might get some flack. With, I think Atkins has outgrown Isaac Florentine as an overall director. And he needs a more well-rounded director who cares about drama as much as the action. And I think Johnson does that. Um um why am i drawing uh james uh james james nunn gets that you know oh yes yes i want to see him work more with them and then come back and do some crazy action with isaac too but those are kind of when he moves forward when i hear atkins be announced that he's working with so-and-so or even uh what's it christian sesma who is in who did uh section eight you know they have a flair for not just the action but they also want to focus on the acting side of things too the sad thing for me, and I know you're going to agree with me when I say this, is he kind of already proved all of this several years earlier. Now it's considered one of his best films, but for a long time people wouldn't even give it the time of day, and I'm having to really scroll down to find it. But all the way back in 2012, Universal Soldier, Day of Reckoning, directed by 
Peter Hyams, because I always want to say John Hyams, but that was his dad, I think. Yep. I'm going to have to double check now because I'm doubting myself. No, I think it's John is the son and Peter is the dad who directed. Yeah, no, so this one, this one was directed by John. Peter directed the original. Yep. But my, but my point is, is everything that we've said, I wish Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning had kick-started almost, but not quite, you know, five, six, seven years earlier. Uh, but for whatever reason, it just it just didn't get people's attention. I think in part because it was like the fifth part of a franchise that most people weren't that interested in. And it was just really confusing. But now I'm happy that it's included a lot of the time with the best Gladkins films. Because, yeah, he was kind of showing that it was all there already. It just he wasn't getting the roles to show it. Yep, definitely. And on that bombshell, I guess uh, that's us done. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? No, I'd say if you haven't seen it, why are you listening to this? But I'm I'm glad you are. Go watch it. And if you haven't watched it in a, uh, a couple of years and have only watched the sequel recently, go back and watch this one again. I think it really, I, I, I fall victim to sequelitis when the new one comes out. Like John Wick 4, I guarantee I'll watch that a ton of times and I won't think of watching John Wick 3, 2, or 1 again just because it's the most newest. It's the most... You know, this is what it is. And I did the same I did the same thing with Accident Man 2. I put that on. And if I wanted to watch Atkins, I just kind of had it on in the background. But re rewatching this, it's it is a complete movie that is completely if you don't if you haven't seen the sequel or if you've only seen the, the sequel, guess what? This sheds so much more light on the character and his background with uh, Ray and actually makes two way better with the whole payoff that happens in that one. So. Yeah, I would say if you haven't seen this in, in a while, go back and watch it again. It's totally worth a rewatch, and it's much better than sometimes we even give it credit for because I fall victim to sequelitis as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And uh, I agree with everything Andy just said. Um, I, I pretty much was one of the only people that wasn't as sold on the sequel, and I, I love the sequel. I'm not saying I don't, but I really love the original. The original for me has always been... Uh, sticking out point and i'm i'm quite happy to say that it is probably because it's very uk central and we don't really get a lot of them and to have that feeling nailed is a rarity and i'm still salty as fuck that i can't buy it on blu-ray in the uk even though it's set here shot here and stars our greatest export <laughs> our greatest export that that might be better than human or the human uh human special effect I yep. love it. Our greatest export. <laughs> <laughs> also start calling him our greatest import. Yeah, man. Go for it. <laughs> All right. Sweet. And on that bombshell, I'm going to hand you over to the me of the future because I've no idea when this episode is going to come out. So hopefully by then I'll know what's coming next. All right, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. You're back. You're with me. You're out of the live room. You're in the pre-recorded room. I don't know what this room is called. But either way, I hope you enjoyed that particular episode. I think that was actually a really good talk. I think that's that when I when I went to edit this one, it's funny how some conversations don't match the memory I have of them. Sometimes in a good way, uh, like this one was, sometimes in a bad way where I think that it sounded better than perhaps it actually did. The one thing I will say I don't know if it's noticeable or if I'm just getting really, like, perfectionist with my audio, but I really f had to do a lot of finicking with this to get it to sound good. 
I don't know if it's a problem with my internet because this isn't the only time I've noticed it recently. Um, but I do feel like I'm not getting the crisp sound I usually get from both me and my guests. But maybe that's just a me thing. I don't know. I hope you enjoyed the little bit of fun that we interjected in some of this as well. I had a lot of fun with my recurring uh, action man joke, which I hope you get, because if you don't, explaining a joke never makes it funnier. I also like the fact that we both ended up just basically going into Boiker accents. That was 100% not scripted, and uh, we were both in hysterics. Which you could kind of hear, but if you could see us, you would have seen just how much we genuinely were just gone at that point. If uh, if that wasn't a clear signal that we'd run the course for this film, I don't know what was. One of the things that I did want to say before we go is I'm aware of the fact that I, I especially when I re-edited it, I didn't quite realise how much I repeated myself in a couple places. I thought about editing it out, but the, the, the two times when I really wanted to edit it a little bit, it wouldn't have made what Andy then said make a lot of sense, and I, you know, I was just kind of reiterating the point, but it did kind of make me want to go. I love both Accident Men films, and uh, as we said in the episode, we didn't want to just compare one to two and two to one, but due to the proximity of when number two came out to when we recorded this, two was very much fresh in our minds, and I think Andy and I probably have seen it two or three times each, so rewatching the first one was a great treat for me because I've always loved it, and I've only recently really seen that there are some people that don't, and as you heard Andy say, he was surprised as well at how much he enjoyed number one, and maybe, you know, he'll have to sort of reflect on which one comes where in his personal standing, which, in my opinion means that this episode did its job because it means that we talked about it deeply enough to make one of the people in that conversation go, huh. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about the second one. Hopefully it won't be that far away. It is not the one that's coming next, though, if that's what you were expecting me to say. No, instead, the one that is coming next is something entirely different. So different, in fact, that it's not a straight-to-DVD, Blu-ray, or streaming, or VHS movie. It was, uh, I would like to say a big-budget film, but off the top of my head, I it was fairly big. But I don't think it really had the response that people wanted from it, given that it starred Henry Cavill and was directed by Guy Ritchie. Yes, we're going to be discussing The Man from Uncle, and I brought back one of my favourite people to do it with. Wendy Freeman, who we haven't heard from since way back when the show's first set of episodes went up, and she was talking with me about Cop Shop. So, she's finally back, and I'm very, very excited, because funnily enough, more by accident, again, than luck, we kind of have two films that are going to be coming back-to-back that actually feature American and Russian... Uh, law enforcement stroke agents teaming up and working together. So, if that gives you a little hint about what might be coming after The Man From U.N.C.L.E., you feel free to let me know on social media. Don't forget, if you can, rate this episode on your podcasting app of choice, leave us a review if you have the time, both of those things really do help, 
I actually recently learned that if you get 200 ratings, which is just where you click like a star button, you don't have to do anything else other than click something. When you get 200 of those, specifically on Apple Podcasts, you become an accredited critic on Rotten Tomatoes and I can like genuinely leave proper reviews and be part of the critic score, which I think would be hilarious if we could do that. So if you do listen to me on Apple Podcasts, please feel free to do that because I would love to wield that power with no responsibility. <laughs> anyway, take care of yourselves, guys, and I will see you in the next one. On the action and-